Hey, J. Crew, producer Josh Cross here with a little Halloween treat for you. If there's one thing besides the Mets that Liel and I agree on, it's horror movies. Actually, come to think of it, those are kind of the same thing anyway. I mean, was the end of this baseball season that much different than turning the corner to see Freddy Krueger staring you down? Nah. Anyway, as Halloween and the spooky season approached this year, Liel wound up with a proverbial killer clown in his bonnet. About figuring out how to reconcile his love of these movies and Halloween in general with his deepening practice of Judaism. So with a little help from a friend, he dove in. I think you'll all get a delightful shock where he wound up. Ooh, ooh. Did you hear that? This gorgeous theme song? Doesn't it just make you want to jump right to the window and check out if Michael Myers is standing there with his mask and his butcher's knife ready to revisit punishment on the town of Haddonfield, Illinois on his favorite night of the year, Halloween? Huh? Huh? Ah, okay. Sorry about that. Let me back up. Hi, my name is Liel, and I am a scary movie junkie. Is the music freaking you out a little bit? Fine, let's try something a bit more cozy, shall we? Better? Good. Now, let me tell you a little bit about horror movies, and why I love them, and why I think they're actually just about the best sources we have left if we want to have a serious conversation about what it means to be a good person. Yeah, really. Listen, I didn't always see horror movies as maybe our last morally serious source of entertainment. When I was young, I spent every afternoon at Video Nakir, my neighborhood's local video store. If you were born after 1990, say, please pause here for a minute and go Google Blockbuster or VHS or, you know, history. The best thing about Video Nakil wasn't the selection, which was to your average American blockbuster what my Israeli hometown Herzliya was to say Chicago. The best thing about Video Nakil was that its employees didn't give a hoot about you, which meant that you could just walk in and rent whatever video you wanted. And that, for an 11-year-old, is the very definition of freedom. I don't remember exactly how I ended up at the horror shelf. Maybe it was the pizza-textured face of Freddy Krueger, the boogeyman from the Nightmare on Elm Street series, grinning at me devilishly. Or maybe it was something more prosaic than that, like the fact that the horror movie shelf was really high and therefore felt I don't know, forbidden and mysterious and cool. Whatever it was, I picked one movie. I think it was Friday the 13th Part 2. Walked it as coolly as I could to the guy behind the counter and pretended like it was no big whoop, just a kid with braces checking out a flick about a dude with a machete who slashed a bunch of teenagers by a lake. Watching. Always on the prowl for intruders. 
waiting to devour. Thirsty for young blood. Would you believe it worked? My heart still beating fast. I walked out of that store with the movie, raced home on my yellow and black bike, and quickly, before my parents returned home from work, popped it in and watched. That was that. I was hooked. What was I hooked on exactly? If you asked me at 11, I would have probably said something dumb. I was a pretty dumb kid. Uh, Something about how cool it was to see all this gore, which was totally not believable, but also so, you know, cool. Remember, this was before the internet and back home in Israel, before cable. We had one channel on our TVs, unironically called Channel One. It ran nature documentaries, The Love Boat, and the weekly Egyptian movie on Friday afternoons. So Jason slaughtering some randy teens at Camp Crystal Lake was a revelation, a bacchanal, a carnival of carnage that was just too, can I use that word again? Cool to ignore. As I grew older, I probably watched just about every horror movie you can imagine. That Japanese zombie musical? Yeah, I've seen it. Santa's sleigh, as in S-L-A-Y? Yep, loved it. And let me tell you, you better pray that you've been nice because the naughty kids on his list get, well, here, have a listen. Yes, Virginia, there is a Santa Claus. But the older I got, the more I wondered if my horror movie kick wasn't, you know, problematic. For one thing, horror movies were Halloween territory, and Halloween didn't seem very Jewish. In fact, I was pretty sure it was downright verboten, forbidden to any observant Jew. And I've become a bit more observant myself these last few years. So I called my friend and teacher, Rabbi David Bashevkin, to ask him if now that I put on tefillin and prayed three times a day and only ate kosher food, it meant no more trick or treating? Hello to you, my dear friend and teacher, Rabbi David Bashevkin. Leah, what an absolute joy to be speaking with you, not on take one, but on unorthodox. You know, I feel like we're cousins. So I feel like I was invited to a family meal together. You know, the extended family. You were invited to a holiday fest indeed. But my friend, it may be the wrong holiday. Look, I know this is not our tradition, but I have a confession to make. Would you hear my confession? For I have sinned. Lay it on me, Leah. What's the confession? The confession is this. Uh, I'm endeavoring, as you know, in my life to be as good as I can about living a wholesome and passionate and committed and Torah-bound Jewish life uh, with many, many flaws and many, many faults and many, many failures, but really doing my best. And yet I absolutely love Halloween. I love everything about it. I love the decor. I love the movies. I love the concepts. I love the spookiness. I love the vibe. And I kind of know, although I'm not sure why, that this, uh, you know, has a strong kind of pagan vibe. So 
Tell me, what am I as an aspiring good Jew? How should I feel about Halloween? Well, I just want to say from the get-go, there's definitely no prohibition of watching Halloween movies. I don't want to be associated with the rabbi who told you that you can't watch Hocus Pocus or its questionable sequel. I don't have the shoulders for that. But really the question is, is whether or not Halloween is a religious holiday. We have a general prohibition in the Torah about celebrating non-Jewish religious holidays. Most Jewish families, and I think for most of American Jewish history, did not celebrate Halloween because the Jewish people looked at it as a non-Jewish religious holiday. However, don't stop the podcast yet. Don't hang up your phone and kick me off to never invite me back again. It's it's not all bad news. I, I think there are two really important kind of distinctions, disclaimers to say even with that. The two disclaimers are as follows, and they're absolutely beautiful, and they really tell you what it means to be Jewish in the broader world. There's an absolutely lovely story that is told about a rabbi known as a Rosh Yeshiva, the head of a yeshiva that is in Brooklyn named Torah Vidas. And his name was Rev Palm. And there's something very beautiful, a story that was told over from one of his students. And he had a very vivid memory on a certain October 31st, where most of the Jewish homes where Rav Palm lived, would turn off their light and discourage trick-or-treaters. I remember growing up with that because Halloween was sometimes a night where, where our bus would get egged. We would sometimes get some you know, mild, nothing violent, but kind of like a mild anti-Semitism in Long Island on Halloween. I remember it was kind of like a little bit of a spooky night. So all the Jews on the block had their lights turned off except this one rabbi, Rav Palm. And in Rathpon's house, he and his wife were in the kitchen working the hot air popcorn maker and preparing plastic bags of popcorn to give out with a smile to all of the trick-or-treaters who came. And like they asked him, like, what are you doing here? Like, I thought we don't celebrate Halloween. And he said, look, I don't go out. My children don't go out to trick-or-treat. But there's also a very important lesson about who your neighbors are and how to foster community and how to build love and kindness in the community in which you live. So even if you don't have the custom of going out to trick-or-treat on Halloween, there absolutely is a religious imperative to have your house stocked with candy so when people knock on your door, you can be sure that you build that sense of community in the larger world to the trick-or-treaters. Do it with a smile. Do it with an orange uh, pumpkin container. Have great candy. I remember when I lived in the city, I was always embarrassed by this. I like forgot it was Halloween and, and, and a group of trick-or-treaters came to knock on my door. And I was like, oh man, like I wanted to embody this story that I knew of Palm, but I couldn't find anything to give them. So all I had was those packets of tuna fish. And I was <laughs> like, look, this is all I got right now. And you know what? They took it with a smile because I gave it with a smile. That is a power move. He's like, you want kids to never come back? It's like, here's some tuna. <laughs> But you know what? Look, it doesn't go bad. It was good tuna fish. Why not? And you know what? The main thing is how do you give it? I gave it with a smile. And in future years, I learned my lesson. And we are always stocked with candy on Halloween night. Can I share a second exception to celebrating Halloween? Oh, I, I would love that. 
The second exception is that my son was in public school for two years, and everybody in the public school was getting dressed up one day to celebrate Halloween. And there was a tension of sorts of whether or not we should send our child dressed up as Halloween. It was not something that we had ever observed, and it was not really a holiday that we were trying to initiate our four or five-year-old son to observe long term. But I think when it's observed within the context of public school, which is so careful about the separation of church and state, where it's really secularized in its observance and a child could be made to needlessly feel kind of less than or inadequate. So in other words, the distinction here really revolves around the fact of how secularized do you believe this holiday to be? In other words, if you see it as still kind of rooted in its pagan roots, you want to stay away. However, if you're in a public school setting and you sort of realize it's just the minhag, the custom of the land, what people do, it has nothing to do with any real feeling other than the desire to get some candy and watch some horror movies. It's cool. Yeah, I think for, for definitely for a young child who the rest of their class is doing it, you know, I think at a point when you're grown up, you want to make sure that whatever you're doing from Halloween doesn't overshadow your commitment to all the Jewish holidays. But yes, I, I don't think it has the same status of prohibition. It's not like you're not going to church on Christmas. So we actually sent our son dressed in a Halloween costume. But my question for you is, what do you think he went dressed as? I would say... Uh either as Rav or Shmuel, the sages from the Talmud. So it's a close guess, and I love that guess. But my son, we asked him, what do you want to go dressed as? And he says, I want to go dressed as the character Herschel from Eric Kimmel's classic children's book, Herschel and the Hanukkah Goblins. Oh, that's amazing. And he went dressed as Herschel and anybody who has the spirit of Halloween, but looking, you know, the spookiness, the terror, but wants a nice Jewish spin to it. I would skip the trick or treating and on Halloween night, read your child Herschel and the Hanukkah Goblin by Eric Kimmel. I think it qualifies as both a Jewish Hanukkah story and something that you can read on a Halloween night. Well, Rabbi Beshevkin, thank you for launching a brand new Minhug. My absolute pleasure. Okay, so I cleared that hurdle. Halloween was sort of forbidden if you thought about it as a religious holiday, but it clearly is just about candy and scary movies these days, so better to just roll with it. Fine. But still, it was time for a deeper reckoning. Was there a point to horror movies beyond just cheap thrills and senseless violence? Was I just indulging, as so many friends and relatives have told me over the last 30 years, in the dumbest and basest genre out there? Or was there more to horror movies? Some truth and even some beauty? I found the answer in an unexpected place. The Talmud. As you may know, I host a daily podcast called Take One, where we read just one page of the Talmud every day. And because the Talmud, the ancient collection of laws, stories, and traditions Jews have been studying for millennia, contains multitudes, it often gives you surprisingly modern and relevant takes. Like this story about Rav Anan, a very good guy who met a monster. 
Once upon a midnight dreary, we're told, Ravanan was sitting in a study and, well, studying, I guess. Back then, rabbis were also judges. So a man walks in with a lawsuit and he asks Ravanan to be the judge. Before Ravanan can even answer, the man also produces a tasty treat, a plate of fried fish as a gift. Great, Ravanan grouses. Now look what you've done. You've given me a gift. So now I can't judge your case impartially because my fellow rabbis could always say that all it takes to buy me off is some fish. The man tried to argue that it wasn't really like that at all, that he had only wanted to show Rav Anand his respect, but Anand wasn't having any of it. He wrote a note and gave it to the man. Here, he said, go show this to my buddy Rav Nachman, and he'll judge your case fairly. So the man goes to Rav Nachman, who is busy hearing a slew of other cases. But once he sees a note from his pal Anand, he tells the man he'll hear his case right away assuming that he was a relative of Rav Anand's and that Anand was simply asking Nachman for a favor, trying to help out family. Now, the Talmud tells us, the other person involved in the same lawsuit was also there. And when he saw his antagonist accepted right away with such honor by the judge Rav Nachman, he felt sick to his stomach. Clearly, he thought, if Rav Nachman is cutting all of his other cases short just to hear my enemy's case, This means, well, it means I'd already lost the trial. So the man begins to stumble, and sure enough, he loses the case. So far, so good. A few confusing coincidences, some misunderstandings, nothing out of the ordinary. It seems like the stuff you'd find at some legal drama like L.A. Law or Ally McBeal. But then the Talmud takes a turn for the much darker. Ravanan, the Talmud tells us, would enjoy regular rendezvous with the prophet Elijah, who would come and teach him some divine wisdom. One day, Elijah stops showing. Ravanan puts two and two together, realizes that his behavior, however well-intentioned, led to a man failing to have a fair hearing in court and therefore to a miscarriage of justice. He fasts and begs, and eventually, Elijah comes back. But when he does, he looks, well... He looks like something out of a horror movie. When Elijah came after that, the Talmud tells us he would scare him as he would appear in frightening forms. Elijah, in other words, turned himself into a monster. What are we to make of this story? If you've watched any horror movies, you may already have an inkling. All of us, or at least all of us who aren't psycho killers, know perfectly well the difference between good and evil. We know that helping a little old lady cross the street is great. We know that hurting an animal or a child is horrible. We need no primers on basic morality, but slide just a little bit into the gray zone, and we all arch our backs and rush to our own defenses. Tell your friend she'd hurt you in some way, and she's likely to apologize, but then immediately add some explanation that contains some form of self-exoneration. I didn't know this thing I did would hurt you. I had all the best intentions. I'm not really at fault. This is why the most common and 
really lousiest form of apology, says something like, I'm so sorry you feel this way. When we utter such explanations, we're not being jerks. We're just being human. And being human means navigating a thicket of interactions which we don't always understand and in which we can't always find a well-lit path out. It means making honest mistakes, causing pain when we don't mean to, messing it up when we'd hope to do nothing but good. And there's nothing more terrifying than watching your best intentions go bad. This, I think, is why virtually all horror movie classics revolve around some form of tragic mishap. The baddies are almost never heartless, soulless monsters who murder because it gives them perverse pleasure. My man, Freddy Krueger, he was the son of a rape survivor who was seriously abused by his adoptive father. Friday the 13th, Jason Voorhees, my first horror movie crush, he was a mentally disabled young boy abandoned by his camp counselors to drown in Crystal Lake before returning from the dead, putting on that hockey mask and, well, you know, slashing away. And the newly released final installment of the Halloween film franchise, or at least final for now, begins with a sweet teenager accidentally killing the bratty boy he was babysitting and quickly becoming the town's pariah. You can only guess how he ends up. These monsters are so terrifying because they're not monsters at all. There but for the grace of God go we. Each of us might have, given a few wrong turns of the wheel, ended up precisely where they'd been, subjected to the same accidents of fate and responding, maybe, with a similarly wrathful indignity. This is why even the so-called good guys in horror movies are, more often than not, terrible. Police officers are dim and skeptical and slow to respond. Parents are irate and oblivious. And teens are often just half a shade less loathsome than the creature chasing them down with a chainsaw. And that's exactly what's so great about horror movies. We need horror movies for the same reason Rav Anand needed a good frightening from Frank and Elijah. To scare us straight. To remind us that the work of being good and just and moral doesn't consist simply of making obvious and easy calls, but of constantly asking ourselves what we might have done, even or especially while meaning nothing but the best, to cause someone somewhere some hurt. Otherwise, we ourselves run the risk of becoming, if not monsters, then something that still falls far short of being fully and gloriously human. Halloween then isn't about terror, it's about teshuva or repentance. It's not a Jewish holiday, but it can easily become a great one. Just grab a handful of candy corn, press play on some good scary movie, and as you hold your fingers in front of your face to block out all the nasty bits, promise yourself you'll try to do better. <laughs> 